Welcome once again to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. And today we're going to be looking at a hopefully very, very familiar Advent hymn, LSB 332, Savior of the Nations Come. Pastor, happy Advent. Thank you. Happy Advent to you as well. Is that is that appropriate to say happy Advent, or, or aren't we supposed to be doom and gloom and uh, repentant and all that stuff? I think, you know, we can say happy uh, because we're looking forward to Christ's coming. That's the entire focus of Advent. Maybe we could say contemplative Advent or, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think we can say it. How about a repentantly joyful Advent? There you go. That would work. <laughs> uh, we're looking at... Uh, Advent hymns. We're going to uh, hopefully look at two Advent hymns in this go around. And uh, Savior of the Nations Come is the one that uh, stuck in my mind for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons was a recent program that I heard right here on KNNA LP 95.7 in Lincoln, Nebraska. And it was a program by the title of something like Bringing Bach Back or something like that for the first Sunday in Advent. And it was all about this hymn. Hmm. Past, Pastor, um, what can you tell? And it was an outstanding program, by the way. I encourage you to check that out. But, uh, Pastor, what can you tell <laughs> us about the connection between this hymn, LSB 332, and Johann Sebastian Bach? Well, um, Bach definitely took and uh, used this hymn uh, in his cantatas, as did also Michael Praetorius, as did also Johann Walter, as did also, you know, uh, you name it, they probably did, uh, because it's a hymn that goes back uh, all the way back to the 4th century A.D., at least in its original source. Uh, and so it is a hymn that has been used in the Christian church throughout the entire existence of the Christian church. Church. And so um, it, it is just truly, truly amazing in that regard. Uh, it's written by Ambrose of Milan, who would be the pastor uh, to like famous people like St. Augustine uh, and uh, um, others as well. I, I think he was uh, the one of the pastors that was involved in the life and times of uh, Constantine the Great as well. Not as much as Eusebius, uh, but uh, he, he also was involved in that same time. And so it has a great history in Christendom and therefore has been used by Martin Luther, by Bach, by Walter, by Praetorius, and by more. Just just a, a speculation kind of a question. You know, Luther uh, translated this hymn and uh, this hymn is uh, originally written by Ambrose in Latin. And one of the things, you know, we talked on an earlier program when we were talking about Luther, the hymn writer, one of the things that Luther did, in addition to writing his own hymns and tunes, one of the things Luther did was he took ancient tunes, ancient hymns, and he modernized them. He translated them into German. Where do you think he heard all these ancient hymns that he would have such a, a body to work from, a, a body of music to work from? When did this happen? Did this happen as a monk? Did this hap Was this a part of the worship of the day? you have any uh, speculation on that? 
Well, uh, I mean, definitely in the sense that uh, Martin Luther was a monk, uh, he would have sung these hymns in Latin as a monk uh, because they were uh, famously used in that way. It also uh, is a part of the liturgy during the uh, season of Advent for the liturgy of the hours um, and the office of readings that would have taken place uh, in the evening time. And so monks have all the times during the day in which they pray different services and uh, uh, liturgies, and this was an actual part of one of them. And so Martin Luther would have been very familiar with it in that regard, doing it on a regular basis uh, for one week each year in the season of Advent. So it's likely he had it memorized and even could understand the theology and the words in the Latin to take it and bring it into the German language. It's, uh, it's astounding to me that a hymn that was written by Ambrose of Milan who lived in the 4th century, 340 to 397, that Ambrose of Milan writes this hymn in the 4th century, and we are still singing it in the 21st century, 17 centuries later. Doesn't that blow your mind? It does, but it doesn't. And I think that's something in the Christian church we always need to be aware of, is that we are actually standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And it's actually good that we do many of the things that they did, because it means we're proclaiming and teaching the same Christian faith. The faith hasn't changed and evolved uh, over time as some other religions have. And I don't necessarily want to get into that. But uh, um, we are able to speak and confess the same things that Ambrose of Milan did. Now, does that mean we agree 100% with everything that he wrote? No. Same with Martin Luther. Same with everybody. Everybody has little quirks and mistakes that they make, um, and we are always seeking to call them out and to speak the truth. But the general gist of what Christmas and Advent is, the incarnation, God the Almighty taking on human flesh, being born for the purpose of dying on the cross and rising from the dead, that part and all that goes with it is shared in all of Christendom, at least if it's really truly Christendom. Uh, Pastor Ambrose is a famous church father. And I don't know how many people think of him as primarily a hymn writer. He's one of the most famous hymn writers of all. But uh, what can you tell us historically a little bit about Ambrose of Milan? Well, uh, he's born in about 340 A.D. uh, in what is... um, essentially Belgium, right? But back then it was uh, called uh, Belgica. Perhaps if you've read uh, Caesar's Wars, you know that uh, the very first line of that is very famous. All Gaul is divided into three parts. Um, um, Very famous line that uh, you got to make sure you know. (laughs) One of those parts is where the Belgae lived, and that would be the area where Ambrose was born. So it's kind of in modern-day Belgium or uh, northeastern France, that general area. Um, His father was a uh, Praetorian prefect, uh, which is a, a... Political uh, position, okay? A bigwig in court. A bigwig in court. Maybe that's the, the best way to do it. So he, he's raised there in that area. And you got to remember that at this time, there's a lot of chaos in the, the Roman Empire, it, malaise, because it's this big, powerful thing that um, 
you know, bureaucracy, as bureaucracy grows, it always becomes more and more complicated and difficult to actually rule. And that's the issue. The century before this, um, Gaul had broken off to be its own empire and then was reconquered. The same thing with the eastern part of the empire, and it was reconquered. And so we're going to have emperors coming to power, Diocletian amongst others, who are going to seek to consolidate their rule by changing the form of the government. And as a part of this, then, um, Ambrose's father dies. Uh, And as Ambrose then decides he's going to move the family to Rome, which would be headquarters of a lot of the power and institutions of the empire. And so he does. And... um, as a result, he, he comes into contact with Christians. The, right about the same time, the Christian church is becoming uh, not necessarily the official, but at least a legalized religion um, at the end of the, the reign of Julian the Apostate. And so um, he is taking this Christian faith and making it his own, and he's going to eventually become the bishop or the pastor of the city of Milan, which is a very, very important position because uh, in the time before this, in the year, um, well, I can't remember the year, but Milan is actually going to be kind of taking the place of Rome as the headquarters of the empire. And it's interesting then, um, Ambrose doesn't become the bishop that's not why he moved to Milan. He moved to Milan to become the governor, uh, the ruler of Milan. And then uh, when he's the governor, uh, the people love him so much that they vote him to become the bishop and the pastor, which can you imagine that now? Somebody loving their politician, their political leader so much that they would ask him to become their pastor. That's that's just a crazy, unheard of thing, and yet that's what happens with Ambrose. Now, now, Pastor, I have heard that Ambrose was in basically catechism class. He was a catechumen when he was elected bishop, and uh, that uh, he was loved so much and respected so much that when he decided to become a Christian, the people immediately elected him to be the bishop. Is, is that basically what happened? I, th- I think, in a sense, yes. Um, you know, we have a lot of time between now and then. That's the basic gist. What are the little details? That's the stuff that gets lost into history. Now, one of the things that uh, is going on at this time, in addition to all the political stuff, there is a major controversy that is going on in the Christian church, and it has to do with a guy by the name of Arius. Um, We don't have a lot of time left in this particular segment, and uh, I believe, again, a lot of time has passed, I believe this hymn was written specifically against the error of Arianism, and we're not talking about the the, uh, uh, white supremacist Aryan movement in Nazi Germany or anything like that. This is a... It's even spelled differently. Uh, yes, and so we just need to be very, very clear and very, very careful that people understand what we're talking about here. But I think I think this hymn strikes at the heart of the Aryan heresy. And uh, I want to I get into verse 1, 
before we talk about Arianism and whatever. Pastor, would you read verse 1, LSB, uh, stanza 1, I'm sorry, stanza 1, LSB 332, Savior of the Nations, come. Savior of the nations, come. Virgin Son, make here your home. Marvel now, O heaven and earth, that the Lord chose such a birth. Okay, what's going on here, Pastor? Well, um, we're, we're talking about Jesus as the Savior of the nations, as we know from our, our Good Friday uh, conversations and things like that before, um, that he's coming to make his home amongst um, the, the womb of the Virgin Mary. He's taking on human flesh. Now, what is really great is the last line, right, uh, that Ambrose calls him Lord. And I think that's really the key here. Ambrose is saying this is the uh, uncreated God that is taking on human flesh uh, and being born of a woman. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to spend a little more time on verse 1 when we come back from our break. But going into the break, I want you to listen now to stanza 1, LSB 332, Savior of the nations come. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal. This is Pastor Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Our At Home in Your Hymnal program is to help us be for, for more familiar with Lutheran worship, the theology and practice, why we worship the way we do. And for the last uh, several episodes, we've been looking at Lutheran hymnody, very subjective uh, title that we've kind of put to these hymns, hymns every Lutheran should know. We are during the season of Advent now, and we're looking at the great Advent hymn, LSB 332, Savior of the Nations Come. This is episode 53. In our uh, first segment, we, we talked quite a bit about the uh, history, the political history around Ambrose of Milan, 4th century church father that uh, is the author originally of this hymn uh, in Latin. It was then translated into German by Martin Luther, uh, who did this with a lot of ancient hymns bringing them into the language of the people. And then we have lots of translators of this hymn into English. In the 19th century, a gentleman by the name of William Reynolds uh, translated the first two stanzas. Uh, Samuel Janzow, a, a very famous Lutheran hymn writer and translator, translated into English verses 4, 5, and 8. The uh, LSB committee takes credit for the translation of stanzas three and six. And um, uh, Gifford Grobing, 
uh, stanza seven. Is that uh, the girl being that's the professor at Fort Wayne Seminary? I believe so. Okay. Uh, I didn't realize that until I was doing a little research on this hymn. I think his daughter married um, one of our family friends, in fact, here not very long ago. Uh, it's a small world in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. So uh, the Bible passage that is generally uh, attributed that this hymn is based on is uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. This hymn is about the incarnation. This hymn is about the person and work of Jesus Christ, heavy on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of our first segment, Pastor, we just introduced a little bit about the heresy called Arianism. And uh, we need to know a little bit about that to set the stage for these marvelous, marvelous stanzas that follow. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of what Arius taught and why it is so dangerous? Yeah, I'll I'll try and do the quick version. In a sense, uh, it's very much related to the modern heresy of Jehovah Witnessism, is that how you say it? Jehovah Witnessism? Um, those <laughs> yeah. folks. I don't know, but it, we just said it. <laughs> we just said it. Um, what it what it the, comes down to it, the very simplest way, is the question of who is Jesus uh, in the beginning? Uh, and so Christianity teaches that Jesus is uncreated and has, in a sense, always existed, even though he is the only begotten Son of God the Father. Arianism says, um, no, Jesus is the first creation of God and is created to be like God or or similar to God in all aspects, Um, but he is not, has not always existed. He is a creation of God the Father. And that's a problem then, because then it means Jesus hasn't always existed, um, that Jesus is kind of... Uh, subjugated to God the Father in terms of the Holy Trinity. Might be a lesser God, a small Uh, G God, but not true God. Correct. And so that's what Arianism teaches, and that's, that's a big problem, and it is not Christian teaching. My understanding is that one of the ways that Arianism became so popular was because Arius uh, and his followers wrote lots of little jingles, uh, maybe like commercial jingles that we would hear today and that just stick in your head. Like a good neighbor, Jesus isn't always existed. Yeah, some, yeah something like that. So uh, he and his followers did this, and Arianism spread like wildfire, mostly through music. And then now we have Ambrose of Milan, who writes this hymn against Arianism. And, Pastor, maybe you can help me out here again. I don't want to get too bogged down with the history. But Ambrose is famous for a style of hymn. Um, He set forth the doctrines of the Orthodox faith in Ambrosian meter. These hymns, congregational in character, became popular in the truest sense and soon found their way uh, into the liturgy, into the people's hearts. Um, Eventually, they found a permanent place in the Roman office. And then it says, the immense popularity of Ambrose's hymns encouraged imitation. 
and a host of hymns in the same form came to be known as Ambrosian hymns. What is this style that we're talking about here that basically Ambrose invented and in some respects is called the father of hymnody? Yeah, well, I mean, so we all know iambic pentameter because we had to learn Julie, or not Julius Caesar. We read Julius Caesar by William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare's the the one famous for iambic pentameter. Um, Ambrosian hymns have four verses uh, in each stanza that are in iambic dimeter or eight syllables, and so uh, you have eight syllables in these iambic. Um, setting and so it's it's a particular meter and that's you can really tell it when you hear savior the nation come uh you can tell and you can do the math and count as you listen to it but you see the eight syllables um in the four da 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 i just counted that's eight yeah there you go And so that's the form, and and that's how Ambrose put it together a long time ago. I am musically illiterate. I love to sing. I can follow the bouncy balls, but I'm I'm completely musically illiterate. And I think a lot of the people in the pews look at the music and look at the hymns the way I do. So I can ask these stupid questions because they're my own, and I don't have to be condescending because the only person I'm condescending to is me. So I appreciate the help and simplifying this. I'm trying to do it as simple as I can, and that's the best way to maybe say it. (laughs) Uh, Folks that are listening, when it comes to these kind of topics, I tell Pastor Moline, explain it like you're talking to a preschooler. And I'm 100% serious with that. Maybe we need to actually, our English isn't the best one in doing this, but in the original Latin, you can definitely see it. So the words are veni redemptor genitum, and you do the counting there. Redemptor has three syllables, genitum has three syllables, and veni has two. And so three plus three plus two equals eight. And then the next line also has eight syllables, and there's your iambic, um, your, I just lost the word here. The, the, the tone, the, the meter, the uh, iambic dimeter. There we go. Okay. All right. So we were, we were looking at stanza one, Savior of the Nations Come. So we are, we are addressing this hymn, or this hymn is about the, the one who is the Savior, not only of a specific people, but of the whole world. Virgin Son, make here your home. So uh, even, even many of the heretics taught that Jesus actually was born of a virgin, just that he wasn't God. And uh, that, oh yeah, this was really common. There were a lot of virgins that gave birth back at this time. Uh, Just foolish, silly teaching, but it was out there. And uh, so they passed this off. They didn't deny it. They just explained away his uh, divinity. Marvel now, O heaven and earth, that the Lord chose such a birth. So here we are introducing this doctrine that's going to be expanded uh, as we go through verse by verse here of the two natures of Christ. Pastor, when I talk about the two natures of Christ, what am I referring to? You're referring to the fact that Jesus is true man and true God, both and completely both. And the two of them 
are combined in the person of Jesus in such a way that we cannot divide or separate them, that he is both man and God at the very same time. And I think, you know, our English translation uh, says that the Lord chose such a birth. And in the Latin uh, original, uh, it, it says God specifically, which is a different word than Lord. Lord could be applied to, you know, like um, the president is the Lord of the United States in a certain way, right? I know that's maybe pushing it. But uh, uh, the Queen of England is the Lord of all England. The, it the, can be a title as well, uh, the, not just a the, the, reference to God. The gentleman is the Lord of his estate. Yes. Yeah, that kind In of thing. In the Latin, it says God, and God is a very much more direct and clear word. Uh, and so that's Ambrose's point, is that God is born of the Virgin Mary. Okay, and this is a mystery. It this is. is a mystery. Uh, stanza two. Do you want to read that, Pastor? Sure. Not by human flesh and blood, by the Spirit of our God, was the Word of God made flesh, woman's offspring pure and fresh. Okay, so what are we talking about here? What um, potential false teaching is being refuted in stanza two? Well, uh, you see this on the History Channel every Easter, right? Or even um, oh, Christmas for a time. while, the ELCA had it on their website. I think they've taken it down now. The idea that um, Jesus uh, is actually the offspring of the Virgin Mary and a Roman soldier who raped her uh, when she was, uh, you know, I don't know, living in her home, and Joseph came to the rescue. And that's not the case. This is actually, uh, as we teach on March 25th when we celebrate this, um, the angel spoke God's word, and Mary heard it and believed it. And when that word came to her ear, uh, she conceived and uh, Jesus Christ to be born then later on at Christmas time. Okay, so in in uh, Nazareth at the church built over the site where this traditionally has happened, which has the traditional home of Mary underneath it, you can see it. Uh, it says here the word became flesh, uh, and I think that's really key uh, in Nazareth when Mary conceives Jesus, the all powerful, almighty God became a human being. So if somebody wants to teach that Jesus was born by a natural uh, interaction or lovemaking between Mary and Joseph, Mary and an itinerant Roman soldier or whatever, this flies in the face of this. This is clearly taught in Scripture. And then the title in that uh, second line there, um, uh, by the Spirit of our God was the Word of God made flesh. And that's that reference to John chapter 1 that I uh, mentioned earlier. Woman's offspring, pure and fresh. Pure and it fresh. Also, yeah, well, I mean, it could also refer to Luke 2 where the angel Gabriel speaks God's word uh, to Mary. And wherever God's word is spoke, the Holy Spirit is attached to that word. And so the word, uh, the Holy Spirit comes to Mary through her ear to conceive the, the Lord Jesus Christ. As, as we go into our second break, let's listen to stanza 2, LSB 332, Savior of the Nations Come. This is episode 53, At Home in Your Hymnal. LP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, this is episode 53. We're looking at the great Advent hymn, Savior of the Nations Come, LSB 332. Probably a good place to say that uh, this hymn is in Lutheran worship, the predecessor to LSB. It is hymn number 13. In TLH, this is a Christmas hymn, not an Advent hymn, and you can see why, because it has a Christmas Day incarnation focus. In TLH, it is hymn number 95, 95, based on John 1.1, John 1.14, Luke 1, Luke 2. There's there's so many scriptural references that come here. We, uh, We talked about some of the history of Ambrose. We've talked about the history of the Arian heresy still alive and well in some of the uh, cults or sects today. Coming back from our break, we heard stanza three. Pastor, do you want to read the words of stanza three, LSB 332? Here a maid was found with child, yet remained a virgin mild. In her womb this truth was shown. God was there upon his throne. How does this emphasize again and again and again? Now for the third time, the two natures of Jesus Christ. Well, again, we have uh, the the word made here. Um, this is the idea of a, a lady who has not been married and or performed the act of marriage with a man. And so you, oftentimes now we use it in terms of you're an old maid if you're over a certain age and not married. I know mm-hmm. that's not appropriate, but um, that's the idea here. So again, Ambrose is emphasizing uh, Mary's virginity uh, and even the pure and kingly hall that's spoken of. Uh, uh, that's in the next verse, I guess. Uh, that's going to be Mary's womb to start with. So um, Mary remains a virgin. In her womb, the truth is shown that God is there in her womb, but yet also at the same time, in a sense, upon his throne, being the God of all. So the uncreated God is in the Virgin Mary in human flesh growing uh, and and proceeding through pregnancy within her. And that's kind of the crazy thing to think about, isn't it? That God would put himself into that position to be dependent upon Mary in her womb in the sense that, you know, Mary needs to have the right nutrition. Mary needs to, you know, not get any car accidents where the seatbelt causes a problem or, or things like that. Um, God has allowed himself to be n- n- needy in that regard, uh, which is a crazy part of the incarnation that we need to consider. In her womb, this truth was shown. God was there upon his throne. So is the throne the womb of the Blessed Virgin? Because wherever Jesus is, there is his throne. Or is this emphasizing that while he is uh, a fetus in the womb of Mary, he is still seated on the throne in heaven? Um, it's, it's all of these, and that's the thing. That's, that's the mystery, isn't it? Yes. It's both. Right. And we we cannot completely understand it with our feeble human minds in the way we understand how things work, which I think oftentimes is a um, a point at putting forward how true Christianity is. No crazy person would come up with something like this, and yet uh, it's what Scripture teaches, and so therefore we teach it as well. Amen. Uh, Pastor, let's move on to stanza four. You want to read those words, please? 
Then stepped forth the Lord of all from his pure and kingly hall, God of God yet fully man, his heroic course began. Again, emphasizing the person of Jesus Christ, true God and true man all at the same time, not uh, not like uh, the top half is God and the bottom half is man, or the inside is God and the outside is man. Uh, none, none of these kind of crazy cyborg uh, kind of science fiction kind of things, but he looks like a human being because he is a human being. Yeah. And yet at the same time, he is absolutely fully God, nothing uh, to be grasped with regard to his divinity. Pastor, the mystery of the incarnation. Why, why is this such a big deal? Well, it matters against uh, heresies like Arianism and Jehovah's Witnessism uh, and all those other isms that uh, deny that reality. Uh, God must be, or, or Jesus must be God, uh, so that our forgiveness counts before God and for all people. Uh, Jesus must be man so that he can step into our place and suffer on the cross. And that's even then, uh, this particular verse begins that process. This is the Christmas verse. He stepped forth uh, from his pure and kingly hall. In other words, he was born uh, in Bethlehem, laid in swaddling cloths in a manger. He is God of God and fully man, and his heroic course begins there in Bethlehem, and it ends in Jerusalem on the cross and then rising from the dead. So when we have here, his heroic course began. (coughs) Excuse me. Now we're making a subtle shift from the emphasis being on the person of Jesus Christ, true God and true man, into his work. What this God-man, Savior, Jesus Christ, Savior for the whole nation, what he is going to do to bring about salvation. Is that a, is that a fair way to see the movement in this hymn? Yeah, and I think that's the thing we need to keep in mind. You know, I think lots of times we're sentimental at Christmas time, and we're like, oh, look how sweet this is with the baby and the, the uh, cattle and the oxen lowing, right? Um, but rather, we need to understand that this baby who's born and laid in the swaddling cloths and uh, uh, laid in a manger will be stripped of his clothing and nailed to a cross to bleed and to die so that our sins might be forgiven. We can't separate these two events. They go together. Let's listen now to stanza four of Savior of the Nations Come. His heroic course began, and so now we're going to see what Ambrose is emphasizing. Again, keep in mind, he's refuting this Arian heresy, and the thing that he emphasizes in stanza five blows my mind. It is one of the very, very, very few Lutheran hymns, Christian hymns, Orthodox hymns that have the courage to address this topic. Pastor, do you want to read that stanza for us, stanza five? 
God the Father was his source, back to God he ran his course, into hell his road went down, back then to his throne and crown. What am I talking about when I say no him has the courage to address this topic? The descent of Christ into hell to proclaim victory uh, over sin, death, and all those who have denied him. And, and that's very clearly put into this particular verse. And it is, it is amazing how the Lutheran confessors, um, more than a thousand years later, are still emphasizing this a la Ambrose when in the formula of Concord, an entire article is devoted to Christ's descent into hell because what seems to be almost a throwaway line in the Apostles' Creed is vital to understanding both the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which is what this hymn is all about. Why is it important to understand what this descent into hell is all about? Well, it, it's important to understand because it's what Scripture teaches, and it actually really truly happened. And, and it is, in a sense, the declaration of our Lord Jesus Christ that he has done what he says, that he has destroyed death, uh, and uh, uh, those who deny Christ in this world will, will hear this declaration from our Lord that he has victory uh, over sin, death, and the devil, and that they were wrong in their denial of Christ. And uh, that's a terrible thing that they are going to have to, in a sense, die with for all of eternity. And yet for us, on the Christian side of things, it is uh, good news, just as, you know, I know it's maybe a a long time ago in our mind, but you remember uh, 20-some years ago, 23 years ago, when the Nebraska Cornhuskers won the national championship, um, they come back to Lincoln. They have a big thing in the Bob Devaney Sports Center. Uh, I suppose they would do Pinnacle Bank Arena today. And they celebrate, and there's a parade, uh, and lots of joy and excitement. And the same thing for us as Christians. That's a sense what uh, Christ is doing. He's conquered, and now he's proclaiming his victory. In that line, well said. In that line, back to God, he ran his course. Running the course, living a perfect life, dying an obedient death on Calvary's cross, rising victorious from sin, death, and the grave, descending into hell to proclaim that victory over sin, death, and the grave, and then ascending back to the Father. How is the ascension referred to here when we sing back then to his throne and crown uh you're the big revelation expert and scholar here pastor what are we what are what are we imagining as we sing verse uh, stanza five well we're looking ahead to god's kingdom and i guess what we'd say is in his ascension christ now sits at the right hand of god the father and he intercedes for us uh, with groanings too deep for words uh he uh, you know, Satan before was able to say to God, look at Clint Poppy, what a sinner he is. And uh, now Jesus says, yes, but I bled and died for him and he's forgiven in me. And so in a sense, he's kind of like maybe a, a way to think about it, your lawyer who speaks on your behalf the uh, before the judge, the advocate, your ambassador, and he speaks a good word for you before God now. This uh, crowning of Jesus in heaven, uh, notice Jesus is crowned king of heaven, not Mary, crowned queen of heaven, uh, have to have a proper understanding of the role of Mary here as well. But Jesus is crowned king of heaven, and this is very, very reminiscent of Revelation chapter 5. That's what comes to my mind uh, as, I, as I hear that. Um, 
we're gonna we're gonna continue on with this uh, with this particular theme. Pastor, uh, do you want to read stanza six, and then we'll listen to stanza five when we go out to our break, and we'll hear stanza six when we come back from our break. Would you do that, please? For you are the Father's Son, who in flesh the victory won. By your mighty power, make whole all our ills of flesh and soul. Okay, we're gonna flesh that out. What it means that he won the victory and how his power makes us whole. What we're talking about uh, with regard to the fruit or the benefit of the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we go to our next break, we're going to play stanza five, stanza five, LSB 332, Savior of the Nations Come. This is At Home in Your Hymnal, episode 53. We'll be right back. Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We have 52 prior episodes of At Home in Your Hymnal. This is episode 53. We're looking at hymns every Lutheran should know. We parked the car during this season of Advent at LSB 332, Savior of the Nations Come. We're not going to have time to talk anything about uh, Luther as translator and hymn writer. We've done that in some previous episodes. This is the first episode where we've had a chance to talk about Ambrose, and so we've spent a little extra time on Ambrose and on the Arian heresy. This is a great, great hymn that talks about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We heard stanza six as we came back from break. Pastor, do you want to read those words again to get them fresh in our brain? For you are the Father's Son, who in flesh the victory won. By your mighty power make whole all our ills of flesh and soul. Now, some have said that stanza six is a hymn stanza that is written in collect form. Pastor, what does that mean, and how does that play out? Well, all of our collects are written in the same way, and you can tell this by the way that the pastor chants them on a Sunday morning, because each part uh, is chanted just a little bit differently. So you start with an address, and that's who you're praying to. So, you know, God the Father, or in this case, uh, God who is the Father's Son. or who the Son is the Father of. Um, and then you have the rationale. What's the reason that I get to talk to you, right? Uh, and in this case, uh, it is because you and flesh the victory won, or oftentimes in our colics, it's like, uh, 
you know, God the Father, that's who our address is, the rationale, we can talk to them, who does this thing? And then we have, after that, the petition, or what we're actually asking God to do. Uh, in this case, by your mighty power, make whole all our ills of flesh and soul. Uh, and in all the other prayers, too, we have a, a question or a thing we ask God to do for us, and this is the part the pastor sings at a lower note um, when he's singing that. And then after that, uh, this is the part that's missing in this particular collect, is the uh, doxological closing, you know, uh, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, or something to that effect, uh, where the note changes again that the pastor sings. And so you see that all the parts of a collect are here except for that closing part, and actually we get that in verse number 8. And so in a sense, it is a collect, it is a prayer here as we close this hymn. I think I think think that's a marvelous, marvelous uh, observation, and to be able to bring that out. But there's more, and, and that's why your pastor chants the the collect the particular way, so you can tell which each one of those parts is, um, and, and that's that's a key thing that I think oftentimes gets lost. I don't just sing the collect because I think it sounds nicer, because it makes me feel pretty or something like that. It actually is teaching you which each of the parts of the prayer are. And uh, it's amazing in uh, midweek and confirmation class how often the uh, young teens in our congregations talk about how much they love the different parts of the service being sung because they can remember it better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you get a song stuck in your head. Maybe a song that you sang in high school, you hear it on the radio, boom, the words are right back to you. And this is true, and it's, it's a great medium. We talked about it, how it can be used for evil with the Aryan heresy and how it can be used for good with good church music and uh great hymns like the hymn we're looking at here. One more thing on stanza six, Pastor. Um, it says, uh, who in flesh... The victory won. By your mighty power, make whole all our ills of flesh and soul. Who in flesh the victory won? This is not just talking about Good Friday, is it? Um, no, Good Friday is never alone, and that's you even though we have uh, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. In a sense, they're all really a part of one another, um, one giant long service. And and that's the truth. We can't have just Good Friday. We have it connected to Easter also, which means that we also will be raised from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of all them that slept, and we will follow where he has gone before. And as we are connected to both Good Friday and Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have this promise that by Christ's power, we will be made whole. All our ills of flesh and soul will be made whole. How will that happen, Pastor? Well, uh, in one sense, it happens now for us already in the sense that we are baptized and we remember our baptism in that we receive the absolution, which forgives all of our sins, uh, and that we partake of the heavenly food uh, in the Lord's Supper. And so it's already happening now, but yet not in its complete fullness that we'll understand on the last day when Christ returns and takes us out of this world of sin, sorrow, and suffering to a world that has no end, that is perfect and complete and total. And that happens then, like I said, already in miniature each divine service that we have where all of God's gifts are given and it will happen on the last day in its fullness a foretaste of the feast to come we uh, we want to look at uh, stanza seven pastor do you want to read those words please 
From the manger, newborn light shines in glory through the night. Darkness there no more resides. In this light, faith now abides. Uh, let's talk about this one a little bit. Um, we don't have the the great theological content that the previous six stanzas have. We have more of an image that is flowing from the manger. And we have this image that's going back between darkness and light, darkness and night, and the light swallows up the darkness. Pastor, what are we talking about here? Well, I wouldn't uh, downplay the theology here because, in a sense, Ambrose is taking the words of John chapter 1 again and setting them to verse. Good point, good point. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, and that, again, uh, continues in verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to his own people, and they did not receive him. But to all who did did receive him who believed in his name. He gave the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that that's the Christmas uh, gospel lesson. And so in a sense, he's taking the bulk of that gospel lesson and putting it here so that you can always remember it and take it with you when you memorize this hymn, as you should. And, and that uh, victory of light over darkness is not only conquering sin, but also conquering the uh, grave and death for us. So it's a at least a partial or veiled reference to the resurrection. Let's listen to stanza seven. Pastor, this uh, this Advent hymn is so simple. It's an easy tune. The words fit very well with the notes. It is so easy and so simple to sing. Does that in any way, shape, or form take away from this particular hymn? I know some of the hymns that, that you are drawn to... Um, Lord, Thee I love with all my heart. Wake, awake, for night is flying. These are hard hymns. These mm-hmm. are difficult tunes. And you've got to really, really work to get that tune into your head. But then once you do, um, it's with you forever. This is more of a plain song. I don't know if that's the proper use of that. But kind of a, a plain and simple little tune. Um, am I making any sense with the question I'm asking? I think I understand what you're saying, and you know that's the the key is that it's not just a tune that makes or breaks a hymn, uh, but it's rather what is it teaching and what's it bringing. So you can have a very hard tune like uh, "We All Believe in One True God," which is probably the hardest one in the hymnal, and yet uh, it still teaches you the Christian faith in such clarity and purity. And once you practice it a little bit, you can get it. This one uh, is maybe a little bit simpler to sing, and yet the theology is very very rich and deep, and that's the important part. It is 
proclaiming the truth of God's word so that we can take that truth and memorize it and make it a part of us in such a way that uh, we have it with us always. And the hard tunes do that. The easy tunes do that. Uh, the important part is the content of the theology. Okay, that's that's very well said, and I appreciate you saying that too. I would love to have someone write a Christmas program, a children's Christmas program based on this hymn. I'll uh, plant that seed in our listeners. Uh, those of you that have uh, listened to At Home in Your Hymnal before know that uh, we do need to spend a couple of moments. Uh, Brian Wolfmuller, pastor in Austin, Texas, has put together a praise song, Hymn Cruncher. It works great for hymns, too. And so we call this the Wolfmuller Hymn Cruncher, and we're going to see how this particular hymn fares. Point number one, is Jesus mentioned? A few times. Yes. Is the song clear? Point two. Yes. I think you do. I mean, to get all of it, you probably need to spend some time studying it, but it is clear in the basic sense and then even more clear in the complex sense. Uh, Number three, mysticism. Is the song about things that God has done or about my own emotions and experiences? It's primarily about the things that God has done, but I don't think you can separate your emotions from the reality of that. Law and gospel. Clear. Very clear. Is there any explicit false teaching? No. No. Okay. Now, uh, it's time for my mea culpa. We, <laughs> we, we do a very subjective thing here with regard to how we rate these hymns. And, uh, you know, I shattered my relationship with Pastor Moline when I only gave Wake Awake for Night is Flying an 8.5 on the poppy scale of 1 to 10. He gave it a 10. He would have gave it a 100 if we would have let him. But uh, he gave it a 10, and I gave it an 8.5, and I haven't heard the end of it. So uh, I am going to revise my rating for Wake Awake for Night is Flying, previous episode. Um, mea culpa, it is no longer an 8.5. It is now an 8.6. Uh, and, I just, and I just want you to know that I toiled over that all night. Pastor, Savior of the Nations come. Scale to 1 to 10, how are you going to rate it? I think, again, this was a 10. This is one of the ones that you should learn and memorize, uh, just like the other 10s that we've given. Uh, so don't neglect this hymn. It's easy to memorize. Uh, in fact, to graduate from the Fort Wayne Seminary, uh, you have a class where a one of the assignments is to memorize this hymn uh, because really? it's that important. Yeah, I'll be. I I did not know that. That is awesome, and we need to work on that with our Sunday school kids, our children's choir, and uh, the children's choir here at Good Shepherd is just absolutely amazing. the The work that they put in and the way they've been singing when they sang stanza one of "Wake Awake" and uh, "For Night Is Flying," I had goosebumps up and down my spine. I heard from lots and lots of people how wonderful they did. Uh, We need to bring this to a close. Uh, I'm going to give this particular hymn a 10. Uh, It's got got it all. It's got it all. Um, So this is At Home in Your Hymnal, Episode 53, Savior of the Nations Come. We're going to be back with another uh, Advent hymn before we move on, and uh, we are planning on doing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. As we bring our... Uh, program to a close. Let's listen to stanza eight, the doxological stanza of Savior of the Nations Come. Glory to- 